Hello and welcome to another Out of the Archives podcast. I'm Caroline Jones, the Wellington College Archivist. And usually at this time of year, at about five o'clock in the evening when I'm leaving work, I love seeing hordes of students heading over to the outdoor pool for a quick dip. This week we received Ms Brown's email telling us about how yet another of our great Wellington traditions maniacs has found a way of going online this year. So all that has got me thinking about swimming and the swimming pools at Wellington, and I thought it would be interesting to have a look at their history. When college was first being built in the 1850s, there was no pool and no lakes, just an area of marshy ground where the lakes are now. But by damming the stream in various places and a bit of excavation, a series of lakes were made. And the lowest of them, pretty much where the outdoor pool is now, was from the beginning designated as the bathing or swimming lake. By the way, I don't think it's a coincidence that in the 19th and earlier part of the 20th century, swimming was more commonly known as bathing. Because at the time, the facilities for actually washing oneself, particularly in college, were pretty rudimentary. So immersing yourself in a river or lake must have been seen as a handy way of getting clean. That said, I don't really think that the lake at Wellington at that time would have had the desired effect. Because it was just that, a lake. And swimming in it must have been quite similar to swimming in Swan Lake, except perhaps a bit deeper, about six feet deep, apparently. A writer in 1890 who was reminiscing about arriving at college in 1868 says that the lakes were often of a thick pea soup consistency, dyeing the hair of the bather a perceptible green. During the 1870s, there were a number of letters to the Wellingtonian requesting that it should be improved. For example... Dear Sir, it would be a great advantage if the bathing lake were to be dredged, as the mud during the bathing season is a nuisance to all bathers, since it makes the water very unpleasant. Another letter. I would propose that circulars should be sent to the fellow's parents, asking them if they will subscribe to have the lake properly cleaned and gravel laid down. And another letter. I would suggest that a few water lilies be planted at the upper end of the bathing lake, They are said to cleanse water. In 1875, we can read about the large quantity of fish which were found when the lake was drained, all of which were moved to the other lakes. Certainly, the water doesn't seem to have been at all clear. At that time, one of the annual swimming competitions was called the Long Dive, uh, which was basically to see who could swim the furthest underwater. But due to the murkiness of the water, the competitors regularly got lost. In 1880, the report for this says that the spectators watched with considerable excitement the track on the surface, which marked the somewhat erratic course of many of the unseen swimmers. Probably the longest dive was Luck, who could now and then be followed with the eye, as he made his way right round to the end. In 1880, an indoor pool was actually constructed in a wooden building near the bathing lake, and we're told that the water was warm. But of course it was much smaller and the lake continued to be the main focus for swimming. In 1884 there was an attempt at improving the lake. Uh, It was divided into two parts and one of them made into an open air bathing place with cemented sides and bottom. 
However, it was still basically a lake, and it contained the same water and wildlife as all the other lakes. In 1888, the report of the life-saving competition tells us that no one succeeded in bringing up the dummy in the last trial, owing to the dirty state of the water which prevented anything from being seen. And again, in 1895, large quantities of fish were found when the lake was drained and cleaned. In the early 20th century, there were attempts at improving the area around the lake, notably in 1911, when we're told... There have been great changes at the bathing lake. A new dressing shed with six bays has replaced the somewhat scanty provision of old. Moreover, the whole of the front has been laid with concrete, so that one can enter and leave the water without carrying away a large quantity of earth, or on a wet day, finishing up with a mud bath. The very next year, those changing rooms were almost burnt down by a fire in the bushes nearby. But they were saved, and in fact... I'm not sure, but I suspect they may still be basically the ones we have now. By the 1930s, people's expectations of what they wanted from a swimming pool had definitely moved on. Outdoor swimming and sunbathing were believed to have health-giving properties, and new, clean, concrete lidos and pools were being built across Britain. Meanwhile, Wellington still had its semi-concreted lake, suffering from nasty scum and green algae. In 1933, the school doctor declared it unfit for bathing and closed it. The small indoor pool had closed during the First World War, or when the school couldn't afford to heat it, and never reopened. So, all in all, the time was ripe for a big improvement. So, 1934 saw the creation of the outdoor pool in the form that we see it now. Fully concreted, with a proper water filtration and chlorination system. It opened in 1935 and the Wellingtonian remarked on the improvement. So clear and inviting was the water that from the high dive platform one could see the floor of the bath from end to end. Since then there have been more improvements, some as recently as last year, but the basic structure of the outdoor pool has remained unchanged. We're very lucky in that we have one of the biggest outdoor pools of any school, perhaps because it was originally based on a lake. Something that you might find surprising is that in the 19th century, far fewer people in general learned to swim. Nowadays, it would probably be rare for any student to arrive at college unable to swim, but in those days it was quite common. Even fewer people could swim with any degree of competence. As a result, various societies were formed to teach swimming and life-saving, to try to reduce the number of drownings. In 1879, a founder of the Royal Life Saving Society, Mr Sidney Holland, wrote a letter to the Wellingtonian highlighting this problem. He says, It is a curious fact that in swimming, alone of all our outdoor pastimes, people are contented to go no further than the very rudiments. Anybody who can bluster about in the water, to the great annoyance of his fellow bathers, and to the certain choking of himself, and who can by this process for a limited time keep his head above water, seems to think that he can swim. People do not appear to understand that for swimming to be of any service, it must be done properly, and that swimming as a rule cannot be learnt without some teaching. In fact, swimming lessons were already available at Wellington by this time. They started in 1876, but they were optional, and I do get the impression 
that most of the recreational swimming that went on was just splashing around. However, there were annual swimming races, which shows that at least some people took it seriously. I don't know exactly when these began, but it was within the college's first ten years, because the first ever Wellingtonian, from July 1868, reports them as the annual swimming races, as though they're a regular thing. Rather like the athletic sports, which we looked at a few weeks ago, they consisted of heats and then finals, held over a few days. The first races seem to have been just two distances, 60 yards and 600 yards, plus, as I mentioned, the long dive, which tested how far you could swim underwater. During the 1870s, the shorter races became 50 and 100 yards and were split by age. The longer race stayed at 600 yards, and this was swum by means of circular laps of the lake rather than lengths as we would now, so the distance can't have been very accurate. At an upper school meeting in 1874, they did discuss the proposal that a bar be floated at each end of the course and the swimmers start with one hand on this and touch it at every turn. But the motion was strongly opposed and after a short discussion rejected. During the 1870s there were many letters to the Wellingtonian suggesting how the competition might be improved but not many of them were acted upon. One which was taken up was a competition for headers that is to say, diving in head first. It seems to have been judged on style, though I'm not sure what the criteria were. Also, by the end of that decade, there was a race which had to be swum in clothes. It started some distance from the pool. The contestants had to run to the pool, dive in, and then swim for a certain distance. In 1881, an aggrieved competitor wrote to the Wellingtonian that Last year, some fellows turned up in undervests with the arms cut off and trousers cut a little above the knee and, of course, had the advantage over those who came down in cricket shirts and long trousers. So, as a result of his complaint, the clothes worn in the race were standardised to a jersey and knickerbockers. The swimming races generally took place around the third week of July. Remember, in those days, term went on for about a month longer than it does now. Also, they were held in the evenings, as was swimming in general, because summer afternoons were used for cricket. That, again, was a matter of contention. One writer to the Wellingtonian asked, if there is no method by which fellows could be made to spend less time bathing in the evenings, because he thought they should spend more time practising cricket. He said that swimmers could easily bathe in 15 minutes instead of wasting the evening down at the lakes. But another writer requested that the races should be held in the afternoon because it is much easier to swim in the heat of the day and much more pleasant after a hard 600 yards race to come out of the water into the warm sun than to come out blue and shivering in the cool of the evening. It can hardly be too much to ask our cricketers to give up an hour on these three afternoons alone of the whole term. You may have noticed that nowhere has it been mentioned what stroke was to be used in these races. A little research tells me that in those days most British people learned to swim breaststroke or a variation of it called the side stroke. I was fascinated to read that Europeans learnt front crawl from Native Americans, but although it was much faster, it took a while to catch on because it was seen as uncivilised. I'm not sure what was used at Wellington, 
But we do know that to be allowed to go bathing, you had to be able to swim 50 yards breaststroke. In 1882, a writer to the Wellingtonian suggested a backstroke race, but in fact that didn't happen until after the Second World War. By the 1930s, I think front crawl was established as the main stroke, because that's when a specific breaststroke race was introduced as something different. The butterfly stroke isn't mentioned until about 1960. As I mentioned, one of the main reasons for teaching swimming was to prevent drowning. So from about 1880, life-saving was taught as well, and there was a competition each year for a Royal Humane Society medal. The competitors each had to bring in a floating dummy, then to bring up a weighted dummy from a certain place indicated, and thirdly, to dive for a dummy the position of which was not accurately known. In 1894, Sidney Holland, who'd written the previous letter urging everyone to learn to swim, came to judge this competition, but he wasn't at all impressed by what he saw. He wrote another letter to the Wellingtonian, saying, I was present at your competition last July, and a more melancholy spectacle I have never seen. I have only just recovered my usual spirits. I do not know whether I felt greater pity for the miserable dummy or for the boys who were compelled to rescue such an undesirable monstrosity. As to this exhibition being a useful one, as to its teaching men how to rescue others, I have no hesitation in saying it is a gloomy farce. As a result of this, the school changed to a different way of teaching and testing life-saving. And in 1895, the first students obtained their Life-Saving Society certificates. Competitive swimming at Wellington didn't change very much until the 1920s, when it became rather more serious. A swimming society was formed. Its aims were to teach life-saving and to provide training for the better swimmers so that they could be more competitive. The first external swimming match um, against Bradfield was held in 1922, and after that, matches against other schools and army training colleges became quite regular. In the school swimming competition, relay races were introduced, along with a house cup awarded on points earned in all the swimming events. Again, as we saw with athletics, over the course of the 20th century, the focus of competition gradually changes from the internal races to competitions against other schools. By 1968, the yearbook remarked, It is becoming clear that Wellington can more than hold its own against schools with similar outdoor baths, but that it is becoming increasingly difficult to compete successfully against schools with heated indoor facilities. Wellington students used circuit training on land to get fit before the season started, but they were still held back because for much of the year it was too cold to train in the pool, and we hadn't had an indoor pool since 1914. Another factor in this was that by this time the summer term started and finished earlier, much as it does now, so the water was that much colder. Gone were the days when the races could be held in the heat of July. In 1970, the Master announced on speech day that the Development Fund appeal would include plans for an indoor pool. Everyone was very pleased, but in fact it took another ten years for the present Fisher Pool to materialise. It finally opened in September 1980. That year saw another milestone, 
when Philippa Williams became the first girl to represent Wellington at swimming. She swam butterfly, I believe competing against boys. Since then, of course, both girls and boys swimming have become strong sports at college, but also swimming for recreation, what used to be known as the general bathe, has stayed popular and is a summertime favourite. I'm going to finish by drawing a few parallels between the past and the present. Firstly, of course, it's very sad that no one is enjoying our outdoor pool this year due to the lockdown. But this isn't the first time that swimming has been limited due to illness. In 1924, an outbreak of mumps at college meant that no one could bathe who might carry disease. And in 1931, the same thing happened with measles. At one stroke, half the school swimmers were forbidden all outdoor bathing till further notice, for the doctor took a firm stance. No one might bathe who had never had measles. Lastly, it's been great to be able to trace the maniac's tradition back through the school's history. I don't know when morning swimming first started, but in 1880 a writer said that the changing shed is usually crowded in the hour before first lesson. In 1935, we read that there were record attendances at the before-breakfast baths. In 1959, this year the pool provided pleasure and relief from first thing in the morning to last thing at night. And in 1966, early morning bathers appeared in force. Maniacs, as we know it, began in the 1990s. In 1997, the yearbook printed the rules, which seem to be just the same as they are today, and by 99, Mars bars are mentioned as prizes. Last of all, I was pleased to find an early reference to another part of the tradition. In 1892, the school had to spend one term at a hotel in Malvern due to a diphtheria outbreak here, and they were able to use the hotel's swimming bath. A couple of years later, a student who had been there wrote to the Wellingtonian, I should like to make a suggestion with respect to the early bathing next term. Those of us who were at Malvern may remember that for the trifling sum of one penny per cup, early bathers were enabled to warm their insides with a genial cup of cocoa, while their outside surfaces were still glowing from their swim. Is there any obstacle to the revival of this excellent institution? It seems to me that it is more desirable here than it was at Malvern, considering the relative distances between the dormitory and the bath. I don't know whether that writer ever got his morning cocoa. I suspect not. But perhaps he'd be pleased to know that 120 years later, maniacs can warm their insides with hot chocolate on Fab Friday. That's all for now. I hope you'll be able to join me again in a couple of weeks for what will be my last podcast of this term. <laughs>